Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Julia Sneeringer, author of the book A Social History of Early Rock and Roll in Germany, Hamburg from Burlesque to the Beatles, 1956 to 69. Julia, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, glad to be, I'm glad to be here. And we're glad to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Um, well, I'm currently a professor in the City University of New York system. Um, my main gig is at Queens College, and I'm also affiliated with the CUNY Graduate Center. Um, I am basically a historian of modern Germany who also works in, um, I'm interested in history of, of music, particularly popular music. Um, I'm a social historian of culture. That's kind of, I think, the label that I give myself most. Um, I'm interested in youth culture. Um, sex and gender, entertainment, history of leisure. Um, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. A lot. I, I'm kind of. I think of myself as working at the intersection of quite a few different things. Uh, that really comes across in your book because you bring together so many fascinating elements, and I, I think you do yourself a bit of a disservice there in your description because you also incorporate politics and how that that effort of, of sort of how officialdom grapples with issues like youth culture and and and, uh, and and youth society. What was it that led you to write a book that incorporated all these elements? Well, um, the, the first impulse for this was a personal experience that I had. Um, when I was a, an exchange student in Hamburg in 1986, right, so I'm dating myself a little bit here, um, I stumbled across a funeral procession for a nightclub in in Hamburg's St. Pauli neighborhood, which is down by the harbor. Um, And it was a funeral march for the Star Club. Um, Now, if you're a Beatles fan, you might have heard of the Star Club. It's one of those places that they played in Germany back before they were famous. Um, And the club had been burned out in a fire and it was about to be torn down. And I sort of stumbled across, you know, a thousand people or so walking through the street, you know, mourning the imminent demise of a nightclub. And, you know, I was really, I was fresh off the airplane. I mean, I really, this was one of my first experiences of Germany. And I was really struck by um, these Germans being so invested in rock and roll. And, you know, it sort of got me thinking about, you know, what did rock and roll mean to them in their particular context, um, you know, because you know, I would, I imagine that rock and roll probably meant something slightly different to them than it did to me. Um, you know, when you grow up in the States in the 70s and the 80s, you know, rock and roll was certainly a big part of, of my life. Um, but I don't think it had quite the same social and cultural power that it once did. And so, you know, sort of witnessing this funeral march for a nightclub um, that had its heyday in the 60s had, had me thinking about this idea of what did rock and roll mean in the 60s in, in Germany? So, you know, I just sort of had this and I filed this away in the back of my head. Um, I wasn't even really a historian at that point. I was more of a German language and, and lit student. 
so, you know, flash forward a few years, I ended up going to grad school for history. Um, and I was certainly interested in, in sort of popular culture. But, you know, it, when I was a grad student, late 80s, early 90s, it was still a subject that I think was struggling for legitimacy. And it certainly wasn't really encouraged in um, my particular program. So, you know, I ended up doing my dissertation on um, Weimar Germany, um, women getting the right to vote. I did a study of political propaganda aimed at women voters. So, you know, what you said earlier about um, political history, I mean, I totally come out of political history. Um, but there too, I mean, you know, I was, I was interested in combining sort of political history with um, social history, lived experience, um, in this case of women voters. So, you know, I had this sort of idea about uh, writing a history of rock and roll in Germany floating around in my head for a long time. But, you know, you so, I sort of felt like I had to prove my bona fides by doing um, something that was a little more, I don't know, respectable or sort of, you know, hard, hard science-y kind of stuff like politics and parties. Um, but then, you know, when you get to book number two, when you get to write your second book, I think there's a lot more um, freedom. And so I really took advantage of of that. And, um, you know, I began working on this book about 20 years ago in earnest. Um, and, you know, I sort of, by that point in time, I was, you know, I was a trained historian. I understood things like, you know, archives and contextualization and periodization. And so I began to fashion this project, um, thinking about rock and roll in this particular time and place. And, you know, the time and place was Hamburg in, in particular. Um, you know, when, when I lived in Hamburg, um, I was always struck by this incredibly lively um, scene of people who cared about older music, music collectors, um, you know, revivalists of 60s bands. Um, and I mean, I just thought to myself, Germans seem to have a very different relationship with this music. And I was just fascinated by that. And so I, what I did with this book was to try and, you know, bring the historian's eye to this particular um, topic. So that's where we get the place that we get. And as I, as I began researching rock and roll, it became clear to me that rock and roll was... It was certainly something new in the late 50s, early 60s, but it would not have been able to exist without an older set of, um, you know, places, people, um, you know, economic relationships and all that. So then, you know, then you start sort of digging backward into the history. And that's how I ended up writing a lot about San Pauli and the long history of entertainment in San Pauli. Um, so... You know, that's that's a long-winded, um, <laughs> a long-winded way of sort of maybe getting this thing started. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, explain a bit that context, the San Pauli uh, district, the uh, its its relationship to Hamburg, and also you know how it uh, emerged out of World War II, because as you explain in that chapter. It had undergone, uh, you know, quite a uh, dramatic series of transformations as a result of the immediate events that were taking place. And here, here I'm not thinking just about, say, the war or even the Third Reich, but I'm thinking also about how you describe, you know, it's a pl it's a place that is oftentimes at the forefront of a lot of the broader social and cultural changes that are taking place 
regarding gender, regarding society in uh, Germany and, and, and Europe more generally in the 19th and 20th centuries? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Hamburg is a port city, and I think port cities are, by definition, interesting, right? They're, they're crossroads of, of people, they're crossroads of commodities, they're crossroads of ideas. So, you know, those kinds of places, I think, are inherently interesting. And, um, you know, so Hamburg is is um, this port city of <clears throat> long-standing um, connections to networks of trade and all that kind of thing. <clears throat> and then within Hamburg, the, 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 the neighborhood that sits right there at the port, San Pauli, is itself this <clears throat> centuries-old, you know, crossroads of people and tourists and merchants and, you know, invading armies and, first and, first and foremost, you know, sailors and seamen. And wherever you've got sailors, you're going to have nightlife, you're going to have sailor bars, you're going to have prostitution. And so, you know, what I began to, to, to learn was that Hamburg and San Pauli had this long-standing infrastructure of providing amusement. And that's the word that they always use. Vergnügung is the German word. So, so this idea of amusement. Um, so, so, so they actually, you know, they, they build up a, a literal infrastructure of places that you can go. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, so the history of the rise of an entertainment district in San Pauli is something that happens right alongside the more familiar stories of the rise of, you know, industrialization and urbanization. And so, you know, a big part of what I ended up thinking about in this book is the ways that a modern entertainment economy is, is, is very much a part of those other stories of industrialization and urbanization. They all work together. Um, so, Let's see. You asked me a lot of questions in there. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I was thinking about how you you describe how it's uh, a place that also is dealing with a lot of the changes in terms of gender relationships uh, as a result of industrialization. And then you have, of course, the, the Weimar era and the uh, shifts that are taking place there as you don't have quite the same you know conservative social dominance. But then you get to the Third Reich and you have this you know additional disruption that takes place with uh, you know the great the the greater regulation of the of the of the German state and its restrictions on certain types of music that it sees as very uh, as as alien as uh, un-German and and how that forces the uh, that really imposes a lot of pressures upon the San Pauli district that are very mm-hmm. relevant to what happens in the post-war era. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, entertainment makes money, you know, so there so the city has an investment in, um, you know, sort of regulating and, 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 you know, making money off of taxation. But at the same time, they want to create a sort of safe touristic product that, you know, that you can so that the, the average tourist can go down there and, you know, enjoy something that's risque but at the same time not feel like they're risking life and limb. So, so the dynamics of tourism are, are another really important part of the story of San Pauli. Um, so, you know, I mean, as, as we go into the sort of early 20th century, um, San Pauli is really interesting because it is most known for being this amusement district, but at the same time, it's also the port, right? So it is very much a working class neighborhood. Um, 
And it's also a neighborhood that has this sort of, you know, sub-working class, the lumpen proletariat element of, of criminals, people who live very marginal existences. Um, and so, you know, it's it's a small place. Um, it's 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 not much bigger than a square mile in its original contours, but within that square mile, it's incredibly packed with all these different impulses. Um, so, you know, in the 1920s, um, you know, we have the rise of um, one really famous nightclub in particular, um, the Alcazar, which, you know, in its day was as famous as anything in Berlin. Um, and, you know, this 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 particular club um, was a stop for um, American artists, for example, you know, Josephine Baker, the Chocolate Kitties, um, Billy Thompson's groups, you know, people that um, become famous in the history of jazz. Um, Hamburg becomes an important stop on their itinerary. So, um, you know, this this influx of popular music from America, um, you know, is, 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 is an important cultural trend in the 1920s. And Hamburg is an important stop on that itinerary. Um, when the Nazis come in in 1933, um, they try on the one hand to completely enact their sort of cultural and racial agenda, right? So, you know, they step in early on and, and they shut down the gay bars. Um, you know, African-American performers, foreign performers can no longer work there. And that's, that's even something that slightly predates the Nazi. That's actually a Depression era, um, you know, decree. Um, and, you know, hot jazz, you know, becomes sort of verboten. Although the definition of what's actually allowed and what's not is often very confusing. Um, but then at the same time, you know, they've got this tourist product that they need to sell. Um, you know, San Pauli is an important generator of revenue. And so, you know, they, the Nazis want to clean up the area somewhat, um, but they can't sanitize it because that would kind of, you know, kill, kill what people are coming there for. So the Nazis, what they basically try and do is is corral, control, keep the unruliest elements um, out of sight. They talk often about cleaning up the sort of street level face of the district, while at the same time, it's clear to everybody who wants to find, you know, prostitution or, you know, um, unlicensed dancing. It's kind of, you know, you, you can still find these things. So the Nazi period is really interesting in showing, you know, the attempt to control, but also the limits of how much the authorities can actually control San Pauli. San Pauli is a very unruly place. And, you know, once the Nazi period is over and the war is over, that unruliness just really roars back out into the open. Um, you know, <clears throat> even in the late 40s, when there's, you know, when provisions are scarce and there's not much to eat, you know, people are dying to go out dancing. You know, they don't care if the cocktails are mostly sugar and colored water. Um, people have this intense desire to um, relax, to, um, to amuse themselves, right? Um, and, and in the 1950s, that blossoms into a real golden age. And that's the phrase that they use all the time to describe the 50s, you know, a golden age of tourism, on the Raperbahn in particular, um, people are coming from all over Northern Europe to go to San Pauli. Um, and I, you know, I think that has a lot to do with 
the fact that it's accessible by rail. This is, you know, the 50s are still an era when people aren't flying to, to remote destinations yet for vacation. So San Pauli really benefits from um, people wanting to relax, people having more disposable income, but, you know, not yet being so flush that they can afford to, you know, take a trip to, to Thailand or whatever. Um, and it's out of that 50s tourism boom that the rock and roll clubs um, are born, in a sense. Um, There's another element in your book, though, that is so vitally important to the story. And that is that as you're describing the birth of these rock and roll clubs, you're also describing how Germans are coming to terms with being German in this post-war context. We're talking about it's the immediate aftermath of World War II. You have uh, a lot of the uh, guilt associated with the, uh, you know, knowledge of the Holocaust, the, the international, you know, you know, sense of judgment about that. And as you describe, a lot of Germans are in, in uh, Hamburg and elsewhere are, are looking outside of Germany for something that they can connect with, that they can enjoy, that they don't feel quite so guilty about. And that was an element that I thought was really fascinating because you describe how eagerly they reach out to external acts, how they're, how they're you know, searching for some sort of you know, entertainment other than German entertainment that doesn't have quite the same immediate connotations that uh, so much of of, of uh, post-war, uh, so much of German culture had in the 1940s, 1950s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky needle to thread in a way because I don't want it to seem like, you know, everybody's rushing off and, and you know, completely casting aside German forms in favor of particularly American forms. But, um, you know, because because German German local forms are still very popular. Um, but, you know, the 50s and the 60s are this, you know, great period of American influence in particular in, in Western Germany as a whole. Um, you know, and, um, you know, I think particularly for young people, young people, you know, the ones who were too young to have physically experienced the war, um, you know, that generation of people born in the early 40s through the early 50s are, those are kind of the main actors in my book in terms of, you know, when I'm talking about youth. Um, They are, you know, whether or not they're consciously thinking about, you know, I want to reject everything that my parents stood for, there is this undeniable attraction of American forms, of foreign forms, because they take you outside of your own um, workaday existence. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that um, when, when you read people who came of age in the 50s and 60s in West Germany, they talk constantly about it was such a boring era. You know, there was nothing going on in Germany. The, the, the German word they use is spießig. It's kind of like, um, you know, uptight, bourgeois, emphasis on orderliness, cleanliness, and respectability. And, and for a lot of young people, um, this felt very suffocating. And so, you know, they're, they're looking for, for, for other impulses. And, you know, again, not every German teenager becomes captivated by American rock and roll. In fact, it's kind of a minority taste, certainly, you know, in the, in the late 50s. Um, but, you know, there's, there is a sort of widespread interest in, in the other right? The other defined in a lot of different ways. So how then does rock and roll come to take root in, in St. Pauli? Who are the 
key figures involved in it and, and what are the venues in which this introduction is taking place? Well, um, you know, there's one guy in particular who, who, who seems to have been the one to really set up the first um, viable club in Hamburg. Um, his name was Bruno Koschmieder. Um, he was a, he was not a, a local. He was somebody who sort of landed in St. Pauli after World War II. Um, he was a nightclub owner. And he was also a guy in the 50s who he's he, you can literally picture this guy trying to make a living any way he can. He, he dealt in jukeboxes and vending machines. Um, you know, he's trying to break into the nightclub business. Um, he ends up being a, also he owns a couple of real B movie um, movie theaters. You know, so this is a guy who's trying to hustle. This is very San Pauli. This is very also 1950s. Um, and he's got a nightclub that is um, sort of struggling along. Um, and, you know, in, in, he founds this club in the late 50s. It's called the Kaiser Keller. And it's in the basement of um, a building at a, at a place called Große Freiheit Number 36. Um, so he's got this club. He's, he's, um, he experiments with, you know, hiring all different kinds of live acts. Um, you know, um, there was a trend, for example, in this period of, um, they called it Indo-Rock. These are sort of Dutch-Indonesian instrumental groups who could play the rock and roll sound, but they totally filtered it through um, sort of Dutch-Indonesian guitar elements, sort of like Hawaiian guitar, which, you know, that's a sound that had been, um, you know, familiar to Europeans actually since the early 20th century. So, you know, so these, these Indo-Rock bands are kind of, um, a hit, but they were professionals, you know, they had, they had stage wear, they had, um, equipment and they weren't cheap. So Koshmeter is sort of a notorious penny pincher and he's looking for cheaper alternatives. Um, he's also got a jukebox in the Kaiser Keller. And this is not by any account, a guy who, who really cares much about rock and roll as music, but he does seem to have a pretty good sense of what sells. And so, you know, he's got some rock and roll music on the jukebox. But, you know, generally the clientele of his club was, um, you know, the not terribly unusual mix of, you know, sailors on leave, the occasional tourist who wanders in, um, people who work in the local entertainment industry, sex workers, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but he makes a connection with um, some people from Liverpool. Now, this is, you know, this is a, this is where the Beatles lore actually helped me a lot in writing this book. You know, the, the story of the Beatles is documented down to like the day. <laughs> I mean, there are literally, you know, what happened this day in Beatle history. And there was there was a there was a figure from Liverpool, a guy by the name of Lord Woodbine. He was um, he was from the West Indies. He was a partner in a nightclub in Liverpool with a guy named Alan Williams. He had been to Hamburg. He had also met, you know, so this is where the, the, the port cities thing comes in. Liverpool and Hamburg are both port cities, right? So you get this sort of traffic of people. And um, he had encountered um, a German sailor in Liverpool who said to him, you know, back in Hamburg, there's all these nightclubs and they're always looking for bands. They're always looking for, for acts to book. And so, you know, through this connection of these people, Koschmieder back in Hamburg 
gets connected with the with Williams and Lord Woodbine in Liverpool, they basically um, make an arrangement. They meet up in London at the Two Eyes Coffee House and they sign um, a contract in which Williams says, I will provide you with some of the bands that I manage back in Liverpool. Now, this was a, a roster of you know several bands. The Beatles were one of these bands. But they were definitely considered in Liverpool at the time to be like, you know, one of the worst bands. Even, <laughs> you know, there was even um, one of one of the other musicians said, oh, my God, don't send the Beatles over. They are so crap. They're going to make the rest of us look bad. <laughs> but, you know, contracts were signed. And um, so Koshmeter ends up importing these bands from Britain who are young. They come relatively cheap. And they can sing rock and roll in English, right? And that's something that didn't Germany did not really have at the time. And so, you know, these bands, he starts, um, you know, having these bands on his stage at his club, and they very quickly become discovered by local fans of the music. And that's where, um, by late 1960, you start to get um, a sort of... Um, almost like a, a small cult of people, several dozen people who start avidly coming to the Kaiser Keller to see these bands. And then, you know, as these things happen, San Pauli, the entertainment district is a small world. Other people start to hear about the success of the Kaiser Keller, which now all of a sudden becomes like a hot destination. Um, so Koshmeet is the first. And then the second character that I profile in the book is, is a guy named Peter Eckhorn. He's a very different character. He's 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 local. He grew up in the neighborhood, and he's also young. You know, Koshmeter is is an adult man. He's he's well into his. I think he's almost forty by the time he's setting up this club. But Peter Eckhorn is twenty one, so he's a young person, and he's got more of a sort of you know instinctual feel for this music. He likes the music as such, um, and he's also the son of of a of a sort of. I don't know if dynasty is the right word for it, but, you know, in San Pauli, there are these families who have had businesses for generations. And Peter Eckhorn is the grandson of a guy who founded a very famous um, entertainment venue right on the Raperbahn, right on the main drag. Um, that venue was, was a hippodrome, right? So, you know, I, I ended up looking into the history of hippodromes, right? These are things you never think you're going to be looking at when you set out to write about rock and roll, but there you go. Hippodromes are big venues where people would go to watch horses race. Um, you could also get up on the horse and ride the horse around the ring. I mean, this is like drunken, you know, spectacle weekend behavior, particularly for sailors on shore leave. Um, and, you know, this was sort of like, you know, working class amusement um, of the first half of the 20th century. But by the late 50s, you know, the Hippodrome was kind of, you know, it was pretty old fashioned. It was not, you know, it was not sort of the great draw that it had once been. And so young Peter Eckhorn is set to inherit the family business. And he looks at this Hippodrome and he says, you know, we could do something much more modern with this space. And so he decides to have the Hippodrome converted into a, a big dance club, a rock and roll club. Um, and by this point in time, you know, the Beatles have been playing at the Kaiser Keller, other acts like Tony Sheridan, um, you know, th this has definitely gotten a local following and, and Eckhorn sort of befriends these guys and 
sort of draws them over, woos them away to his new club. Um, and, you know, once once the music ends up on the Raperbahn, which is a much bigger boulevard, um, it's kind of the main drag, very, you know, heavily neon lit. You know, it's where the, the masses would throng on Fridays and Saturday nights. Um, you know, putting that music on the Raperbahn gave it a much bigger profile, much higher exposure. And it also kind of, it broadened out the audience for rock and roll. So it's no longer just played now in this sort of basement venue, but now it's in this sort of brightly lit place right on the main drag. Um, so again, rock and roll in the early 60s in Hamburg is proving to be a good business proposition. And, you know, again, I think that's one of the important things um, that, I, that I discovered is that, you know, rock and roll is good business. And, and, and that's why it continues to grow in the early 60s. Um, and then the third entrepreneur who comes into the story um, is a guy named Manfred Weisleder. And Weisleder is, to me, the most interesting. Um, he's a guy, he is a transplant from, from Dortmund, Germany's industrial heartland. He moves to Hamburg in the mid-50s. Again, kind of, you know, seeking to make his fortune. Um, you know, he's an electrician, and he ends up becoming an electrician for several nightclubs in the district. And he is sort of famously thrifty, and he is able to parlay his um, his savings into buying a couple of clubs of his own. And very quickly, he ends up owning um, nightclubs up and down um, one particular side street off the Raperbahn. This is a place called the Große Freiheit. Um, and... You know, in, in 1962, he is um, he owns a he owns a, a very successful place called the Erotic Nightclub. Okay, <laughs> um, so again, the, the histories of of, of 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 sex and entertainment are very much intertwined with the story of rock and roll in San Pauli. Um, he, um, the authorities come to Vice later and say, "You need to provide a better fire exit for the Erotic Nightclub." Well, the erotic is in the upper floor of a building at Wilson Freiheit number 39. Um, and after, you know, I don't, you can read all the details in the book if you want to, but basically he ends up acquiring the, um, the movie house that's in the first floor on the street level. Now, movie houses <clears throat> had been a very popular attraction in San Pauli for decades. One, you know, one of Germany's first permanent movie houses was founded in the area around 1900. Um, but by 1960, you know, the audience for going out to the movies is also diminishing, right? Television. Um, Germans, you know, now have um, more comfortable homes, much more income to spend on sort of, you know, domestic entertainment, the older generation in particular. And so, you know, cinemas are sort of going bankrupt left and right. So Weiss later acquires this bankrupt movie house, and um, it was called the Sternkino. German, uh, the German word for star is Stern. And so he renames this new space, the Star Club. And he literally sets about making this old movie house into um, the, the best rock and roll club on the European continent. That was absolutely his ambition. Again, he's not a guy who sort of comes into this as some great rock and roll fan. But he understands good business. He sees the success of these other clubs. And so, you know, he's like, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to do it better than anybody else. He, he, he taps into 
um, local expertise, and he taps into people who are friends with bands. And so, you know, you get this sort of coming together of, of capitalist, um, you know, enterprise, entrepreneurship with band culture, um, youth culture, people who really know the music scene, such as, it, such as it is developing. And the Star Club sort of brings all these things together. And um, the Star Club opened in April of 1962. And when it opened... Um, you know, it was instantly very popular. It was, you know, it was well advertised. There was a big buzz around this new club. Um, and it was impressive by all accounts. I mean, you know, you can see sort of photographic evidence of this. Um, but, you know, it could fit hundreds of people. It had the best sound system. And it literally became the place to see and be seen. By the end of 1962, it's drawing thousands of people every weekend um, and even weeknights down to... Um, down to San Pauli. Um, so, you know, I, I could continue on, but um, <laughs> maybe you want to interject here. <laughs> no, I was, I was actually thinking about uh, how you, you described the acts that are coming in. And one of the interesting points you make in your book is that, you know, the, the acts themselves are, are very famous. The Beatles, of course, being the, the, the most famous of them. And, you know, we, we think a lot about, you know, how the Beatles influence music and how the Beatles, uh, you know, uh, shape the audience, shape fashion and so forth. As you explain in your book, though, when you're talking about these acts, it's a two-way street. You, you, I, I was especially struck by how you point out that the Beatles, in some ways, were became more professional during their time performing in Hamburg, and how these other acts are coming in, and they are uh, being influenced by the situation. You, you actually seen the rise of groups such as the uh, the uh, Liverbirds, who are in, in effect. I mean, they're they're creations in say the UK, but they really are having their moment in Hamburg. They're having their moment in the Star Club, where they have that audience and, and really make their greatest impact upon music. So, how exactly is that exchange taking place? And and who are some of the and who are some of the acts that are really benefiting? from that opportunity that Hamburg is giving them? Well, um, you know, starting with the Beatles, I mean, you know, when the Beatles come to Hamburg, they are completely rough. They are, you know, they, they just hired Pete Best out of nowhere to be their drummer, just to literally make the trip. But coming to Hamburg, they have to play this grueling schedule of um, basically six days a week, you know, seven, eight hours a night, um, and you know, that's going to make, um, that's going to, you know, they're, they're constantly having music practice on stage. Um, so Hamburg makes them into a, um, you know, certainly a more professional act, but it also makes them into just qualitatively better musicians. Um, the other thing that happens to the Beatles is that they meet young Germans. Um, now when, when they first come to, to Hamburg, um, you know, they are not particularly, um, <clears throat> they're not particularly there because there's any great love that they have for Germany. Um, you know, John Lennon, um, Stu Sutcliffe, who was the Beatles' original bass player, you know, initially they think Hamburg is, is, is awful. Um, you know, they're living in the men's, next to the men's toilets behind this grotty old <laughs> movie house, right? You know, again, these are stories that are sort of famous to, to Beatles fans, but you know, what I tried to do in this book is take these stories that Beatles fans know and actually, you know, put the put the history behind them, you know, give them this sort of um, more rigorous contextualization. Um, but they end up meeting young Germans who come 
one of the, the first one to show up at the club sort of comes by accident, you know, middle class son, son of a banker, you know, art student. And, and he sees these, these, these Brits on stage and he's just completely knocked out by this. Cause he's like, you know, there's nothing in our German experiences like this. You know, these guys are, are, they're channeling something that is so interesting and so wild and, you know, so so this German guy Klaus Bormann, he he gets so excited that he drags his friends to come out, and you know his friends they are all instantly captivated by these Brits on stage. Um, and Astrid Kircher, who who passed away recently, she's really in many ways one of the key figures of my book. She is um, she's a young um, photographer. She's just out of art school. She's working as a photographer. Um, she is that sort of um, you know, new, independent, fashionable young woman who who takes her art school training and her own modernist aesthetic, and she she applies it to this very raw form of rock and roll. And you know, she famously falls in love with Stu Sutcliffe, um, the Beatles' first bassist. And you know, they sort of this becomes the nexus of this interchange between these young artsy Germans. And these young Brits and, and, and the Beatles themselves go from being kind of initially hostile to the Germans, you know, for, for reasons that are not that hard to understand, um, to becoming, you know, hugely interested in, in hanging out with them, learning from them. Um, Paul McCartney was the one who could speak the most German. Um, you know, John Lennon didn't even really try. <laughs> you know, there's different there's different degrees within the group of, of how interested they are in this. But you know, none of this is um, planned, you know, none of this happens by design, um, but it's this sort of accidental meeting between Germans and Brits that I think ends up creating this incredibly um, important cultural transformation, right? The Germans definitely are getting something out of this. These young Germans are growing up in a society that is, um, you know, pretty repressed, um, you know, a society that's trying to put the Nazi past behind it. Um, that is obsessed with, you know, hard work, putting your nose to the grindstone, being productive, rebuilding. Um, it's a very emotionally repressed society. You know, you're not encouraged to, to speak about your feelings. You know, who cares about your feelings? And so these young Germans, when they encounter rock and roll on stage in this live environment, um, they sort of perceive this as, as a really great cathartic moment for themselves. Um, the, 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 the musicians, you know, these young people from Britain, um, this is also a transformative experience for them. Um, and, you know, I actually, I structured the book around different groups of actors because I was really interested in the lived experience of rock and roll in this particular time and place, right? So, you know, so I have a chapter that's about the musicians and that that's, that's the part that talk somewhat about um, you know, them and their experience um, coming out of Great Britain, which is itself also, you know, a, a, a sort of an emotionally uptight society. Um, so, so these young Brits are coming to Hamburg, they're coming to St. Pauli, this place that is completely about, you know, a 24-hour party culture, it's about, um, you know, sexual spectacle, sexual commerce. Um, you know, these are sort of people in their late teens. Um, so, you know, you can kind of imagine that, you know, this is a pretty exciting place for them as well. So they're coming of age in, you know, this, this licentious outpost 
in, in Germany's most liberal city. I mean, Hamburg is definitely Germany's most liberal city in this period. Um, so they're coming of age sexually, but then they're also, you know, in these encounters with these young Germans, um, you know, I think there's a lot of um, emotional growth that happens for them as well. Um, so, you know, there's different people that I write about in the book. Um, sort of the Beatles are certainly the most famous, but another guy that I interviewed at length, um, his name is Gibson Kemp. He was also a musician. He was a drummer. He was a drummer for um, several groups, but most famously with um, King Size Taylor and the Dominoes, you know, another band from Liverpool. Just, you know, there's sort of dozens of these bands who are hired over from Britain once, once they catch on. There's just like an endless supply of them and they keep coming over. Um, so, but Gibson Kemp, you know, he still, he, he ended up staying in Hamburg. He ended up marrying, um, he, he married Astrid Kircher back in the 60s. They divorced. He ended up marrying another German. Um, he now owns a British pub in Hamburg, right? So, you know, he is sort of one of these people who talked to me at great length about um, how, you know, for the musicians, they're not, they weren't thinking terribly deeply about the great implications of all of this. But looking back on it, you know, he realizes what a great, um, this was a momentous change in his own outlook. It was a broadening out of their own horizons. Um, <clears throat> you know, if they had stayed at home and stayed in Liverpool for the rest of their lives, they would have probably maintained a fairly provincial outlook. So, you know, so so the, the larger point here is that, you know, there people on both sides of the exchange are getting something out of it. Um, and they all pretty much agree that they that they increasingly came to feel like they were part of something that was um, much larger than themselves. Um, you know, and, and I make the argument that Hamburg is a really important place in terms of the creation of a sort of transnational youth culture that, that by the late 60s will become sort of the global language of youth across, you know, certainly across the Western world and, and arguably across the globe. Um, I would love to talk more about the library birds too, but I think let's, let's you know, maybe you need to interject. <laughs> well, I was actually going to say that uh, I, I, I was, you know, that was one of the things that fascinated me. You argue in some ways that they, that uh, being in Hamburg gave uh, a lot of these groups more freedom than they, than they had in Liverpool. It certainly gave them more fame. But you also talk about this intersection between the, uh, you, that, that's, you also talk about the audience. And, and, and the discussion of the audience is really interesting, in part because it gets to uh, a lot of what's happening, you know, sort of the impact of this upon the Germans. But as you explain, there isn't a whole lot of discussion about audience in, in so much of the history of music. It's just assumed that they're there, or it's just that they're taken as fans. And as you explain, you, you've already discussed it to, to some degree, you're, you're talking about a generation of Germans who are processing this new music that, that's there. It's not, I mean, for some of them, they're, they're encountering it, as you were describing earlier, through jukeboxes, through what they might have uh, overheard from, say, uh, servicemen from America and, and Britain who happen to have brought over the music with them. But you're also talking about how what's happening in Hamburg is creating a rock and roll audience uh, in uh, Hamburg, in Germany, in Western Europe, that is going to be so influential for decades to come. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, fandom has a history and, you know, it's a history that has not really been much written about, but that's definitely starting to change. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I at a, at a sort of formative stage of conceptualizing this book, I encountered um, Christopher Small's work on musicking, right, coming out of musicology. 
And, you know, he puts the emphasis on what people do with music. That's what creates meaning in music. And, you know, that really appealed to me as a social historian, right? I'm, I'm really interested in, um, you know, how do people live through these changes? How do people um, create culture in their daily lives? And so, you know, looking at fans to me was absolutely an ind- indispensable part of the story. Um, you know, because, I mean, fans are not just passive consumers. Um, they actively, um, <clears throat> they actively sort of, you know, recreate the works that they consume in their own lives when they do things like, um, you know, putting up a picture on your bedroom wall of, of, of somebody that you admire. Um, when you start to change the way you dress because of, you know, some role model. Um, and, you know, so, so I was really interested in trying to get at how fans are part of making this scene. Um, and, you know, for the early stages of the Hamburg scene, you know, these, these German art students are really crucial. There, there are so few people at that point that, you know, you can sort of, you can talk about this small group of people having a big impact. Um, you know, there, there are also sort of working class fans of this music too. Um, you know, the rockers with a capital R, um, you know, they were the, um, they were the fans of, of Elvis who, who dressed in that manner and, you know, rode motorbikes and that kind of thing. So they're also a very important part of the story, but, um, but the art student fans, you know, end up sort of pushing the culture, um, into something different. You know, the rockers, in a sense, would have probably been, been content had rock and roll stayed the same as it was in 1956, whereas, you know, the art students, um, you know, they're kind of, they're bringing all kinds of other cultural impulses. They're interested in, like, French chanson, for example. Um, you know, they've got their art school training. So they're sort of pushing, they're part of pushing rock and roll in this more complex and artistic direction, you know, which the Beatles absolutely exemplify. Um, but, you know, when, when the scene goes beyond just a small clique of, of insiders into a bigger phenomenon, you know, by, with the opening of the Star Club, for example, you know, when you've got thousands of people who want to pack into this club on a Friday or a Saturday night, um, you know, I was really interested, like, what was that like? What was it like to, you know, how did they get to the club, you know? For, you know, for example, the Star Club, when you look at its placement on the street, it was nestled in between um, a transvestite bar and, um, you know, a regular bar. And it's on a strip that's full of, of strip clubs. Um, there's a Catholic church a few doors down. Um, the sort of little Chinatown is a few doors, you know, further in another direction. So, you know, again... I keep coming back to this notion of, of the intersections of all different kinds of impulses in this relative, in this relatively small space. Um, you know, I was very also interested in the social geography of, of where these nightclubs were situated. Um, so, you know, what does it mean then when you're, um, let's say, a 16 year old girl in 1963 and you want to go down to the Star Club? You've heard about this cool place from some of your friends. OK, are you allowed to go down there? Um, would your parents let you go there? Okay, let's say your parents would let you go there. Let's say you were honest and actually told them where you were going, <laughs> right? Okay, then there's the police. The police have officially deemed the district of San Pauli um, a, a morally endangering place for youth. 
young people were technically not supposed to be in the area to consume amusements. Um, and so, you know, so, okay, let's say your parents let you go down. Okay, well, now you've got to deal with the possibility that you might get, you know, stopped in the, in the club, and certainly you'll be asked for your ID. If you're underage, you have to leave the club by 10 o'clock at night. But let's say you don't want to leave, right? So, you know, so, you know, thinking about this sort of lived experience of the average person who never becomes well-known, who never, you know, really leaves many traces, that was something that I really tried to reconstruct. And that's, you know, I end up having to sort of um, turn to police files for a lot of that kind of, um, you know, archival evidence. But, you know, getting back to, to fans as, as an important part of the story, I think the other part that was very important to me is that studying fans is a way that you can get a more gendered perspective on this whole story. Um, <clears throat> you know, with a few exceptions, the bands are guys. Um, the, the sort of, the, the sort of, the night, the, the, the nightlife scene in San Pauli is more conducive to the male customer, although there are certainly women customers as well. And so looking at fans was important to me as a way to get at the story of, of young women and teenage girls, um, you know, because they are far more likely to be found among the fans than they are up on stage. And, you know, there, there's a lot of, I spoke to some some uh, people who were fans back in the day, um, you know, talking about their experiences. And, you know, for some, it is um, a sort of sexual experience. There is certainly the groupy thing, you know, um, early on before, you know, grippy even becomes a word. But quite a few of the people I, that I met didn't necessarily want to construct their experience in those overtly sexual terms, um, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, these women are, you know, some of them were grandmothers. Maybe they didn't want to, <laughs> you know, maybe they didn't want to have themselves known in those terms, even if stuff happened. Right. So you kind of have to, you have to take people somewhat, you know, at their word there. But one of the things that came up frequently was they talked about friendship. They talked about the friends that they made by going to the clubs. Um, they talked about their own peers within the scene. Um, so, you know, and they also talked about loving the bands, um, but not necessarily in a sexual way, but sort of looking at the bands as, um, in some cases, well, these are young people like myself. So, you know, if they're, go if they're up there doing something creative, you know, some of them talk about, I felt more empowered to do creative things in my own life. Um, so, you know, sort of trying to tease out the history of that fan experience um, is something that I tried to do in that particular chapter of the book. I like how you incorporate the photos into it. And I'm thinking about two in particular. The first is the cover photo, which I think really makes that point about the, the, the female experience. Because if you look at the photo closely, at least half of the fans that are depicted in it at, at the foot of the stage are women. And yeah. it, might, it might be slightly more than that, some, some of the ones you can't pick out. But then you have uh, a picture uh, in the chapter itself where you have, uh, it's predominantly women. It's the one on uh, page 107 where you have the, uh, the it's the uh, afternoon show at the Star Club. And it's, 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 it's mostly women. And, and so you have that, that sense of it. But it's also fascinating because if you look at these pictures closely, it, it reinforces the point that you make in the book that, I mean, this is a point at which, you're seeing that you know, it's they're they're there they're engaging in something that is oftentimes regarded as very daring, but we're not talking about 
you know, the, the, the punk crowds of the 1970s. We're not talking about people that are showing up in, in, uh, in fishnets and, and t-shirts. I mean, they're, they're, they look very demure. They're, they're, they're very made up. It, it, it's, it's that sense of, of how they're, they're, they're venturing out there into this culture for the first time. They're experiment. They're enjoying it, but they're, they're doing it in ways that, that seem very, uh, is that can sometimes seem very restrained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, I think that's right. And, and, you know, they're pushing at borders, but they're, you know, they're not busting through them, right? You know, yeah. you use the punk analogy. Um, but nonetheless, that pushing at borders is important and it's significant, right? And I wanted to sort of rescue, particularly the sort of teeny bopper girl, I wanted to rescue her from yeah. the condescension of posterity, you know, I mean, because gosh, if you read, you know, rock journalism from certainly the past, I mean, there is no more um, figure of derision than the teenage girl, right? You know, Paul McCartney routinely being dismissed as like, oh, he's just writing music for teeny boppers. And I'm like, well, what about the teeny boppers? <laughs> you know, that girl in that particular photograph, um, you know, she looks to be about 12 or 13 years old. Um, she is the, the, the experience on her face, right? She is experiencing a moment of joy. So, you know, I really tried to, to take seriously, what did that mean to someone like her? Um, by the way, this is a brief moment in the history of the Star Club when they were allowed to have Sunday afternoon concerts in which um, children, literally 12, 13, 14 years old, could be admitted to the club. Um, these were actually quickly shut down by the city because, again, you know, the very notion that you would be bringing children into this disreputable district um, that was more than they could they, they could bear so so that that photograph was taken at a very particular moment um, but you know the, the the photograph that's on the cover um, you know when I when I was asked to select you know a cover image I found this in the Getty catalog and, and it just knocked me out because I was like this this photograph explains everything that I'm trying to do in this book um, you know as you mentioned there's there's an almost total gender parity. Um, these girls and boys are not particularly glamorous. They're not particularly avant-garde in their look. They're certainly fashionable. Um, but, you know, the sort of regularness of it was also really attractive to me. Um, you can see what they're drinking. There's bottles of Coke and there's a couple of bottles of the local beer. Um, but that's it. You know, that's all there was for sale at the club. Coke or beer and that's pretty much it, 50 cents or, or, or a Deutschmark, nothing expensive, nothing fancy. Um, but, you know, most of them are there, if they're hopped up on anything, it's more likely to be Coca-Cola, maybe a couple of diet pills. Um, so this is not some, you know, heavy freak out drug scene, you know, that will come much later, <laughs> later in the decade. Um, and the other thing, too, their placement, they are right there at the foot of the stage. Um, that closeness between the bands and the audiences was really striking to me. The more I researched what, what the actual clubs, you know, what the club experience was, um, there, there is no great separation between the fans and the audience. And in that way, it is kind of like punk. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm somebody who, in my own personal history, I have a real affinity for um, you know, I certainly liked punk when I was younger, but I also am a big fan of like, you know, 60s garage bands and, and sort of that notion that anybody can get up on stage and do this thing. Um, that notion of the musicians literally emanating out of the audience. Um, and, and I think, you know, my own personal 
interest as a fan absolutely influenced my scholarship in this book. Um, you know, I mean, of course, we as scholars have to be rigorous. We have to, um, you know, maintain a certain objectivity. But I think there's also a value in um, coming at our subject from a certain insider knowledge perspective. I think that there are just certain things that I picked up on in writing about these this this time and place that that others who who write about rock and roll not have not always really picked up on you know so and so I mean being a fan I think helped me to write this book and I hope it didn't cloud my judgment too much. Um, but well, I mean I certainly have a sympathy with the fans. I understand. I would I, I would say looking at your chapter on the authorities, it didn't cloud your judgment too much because you write about them with a, a degree of sympathy for the challenges they face. I mean, here you're, you're talking about a very different perspective on the whole scene. I mean, you, when you're talking about the promoters, you're talking about the musicians, you're talking about the audiences, you're talking about people that are vested in it either professionally or personally. But then you're talking about the authorities, and for them, it's 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 alien or it's a headache and yet as you described they're having to come to terms with they can't just simply you know just you know ban it and dismiss it they they have to process it in a certain way and as you explain the way they process it it you know you know, plays a role in in the history of it as well as as you've already alluded to in terms of the, the, who they permit uh who they ban uh keeping the clubs open the brief times they try to shut them down they're, you know, in their own way, shaping the music experience of Hamburg during this time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and again, I think this is where understanding the long history of the place helped me out. Um, you know, as I said before, you know, San Pauli is a moneymaker and the authorities are always conscious of that. Um, you know, even um, Helmut Schmidt, who ends up becoming chancellor of Germany in the late 70s, he was he was Hamburg's um, minister of the interior in this period. And so he's a guy who is basically overseeing policing in the city. And, you know, he sort of famously says at one point, you know, um, we don't want to become just a sleepy provincial town. You know, we have to allow a certain amount of licentiousness here. And that is a good thing. And all of us in Hamburg know this about San Pauli and, and we treasure this about San Pauli. He goes on and on about this. Um, but, you know, the, the, one of the other main characters of the book is a guy by the name of Kurt Falk. And Falk is, he's the local tax official for the district, right? So, you know, the money side of this is a really important part of the story as well. Um, he sort of, he goes after, in a very open and concerted way, the head of the Star Club, Vice Leder. And he goes after Vice Leder for back taxes in particular, but also, um, you know, Falk doesn't like the whole um, uh, sort of what he perceives to be an atmosphere of lawlessness in and around the club. Now, you know, everybody who was a part of the Star Club audience, you know, whether they talk to me or whether, you know, they, they, there are a lot of sort of printed oral histories and things at the club. And, and they constantly say that, you know, once you're in the club, you know, you're, you're not in any danger of being accosted or mugged or anything like that, unless you get violently drunk and pick a fight with somebody. But Falk is sort of looking at this from the perspective of, you know, an older person um, who's sort of a guardian of law and order he absolutely hates the idea of young people coming into this district. Um, he looks at that as just, you know, it's just a slippery slope between a young woman going down to a nightclub like this and her falling into 
all kinds of bad ways, which will inevitably end in prostitution, you know, and, and Falk and, and people in the police, people in the welfare authority system, um, a lot of female, um, you know, bureaucrats, they, they are genuinely worried about what could happen to young people. And I don't think that that's an unfounded fear. Um, you know, this is a rough area. Um, and so, you know, there are certainly people acting in good faith to protect young people, but there is also this sort of reflexive policing impulse to um, basically view any unaccompanied young woman in particular as a potential prostitute. And so, you know, this is where looking at arrest files, looking at the files of the um, this particular policing unit called the Youth Protection Squads, right, which is a great name. Um, you know, you, you find them literally arresting people um, for very flimsy charges. And in some cases, you know, some of these young women, some of these young men end up in, um, you know, um, detention facilities, incarceration. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, trying to sort of, I, I wanted to give the authorities the same understanding that I give other actors in the book, because I'm trying to, to understand this scene from multiple points of view. You have this uh, moment that you describe a cu- at a couple points in your final chapter that I, I, I thought was really great. And it's the scene where uh, Vice Later is uh, in his club and it's 19, uh, I think it was 1966. And he has this act on stage and this act who I, I who's I think it's Jimi Hendrix is mm-hmm. is playing and you describe how the audience is just you're just loving what he's doing on stage and you have Vice Later who's like what the hell is happening here and it seems that that moment is the moment where you, you don't quite present it this way but it seems that's the moment at which everything is you get, you get a sense that that's the moment which you're, you're starting to see the changes taking place that's going to bring an end to this era i was wondering if you could explain what were some of the factors taking place and why is it that you, that this music scene which is so vibrant in the in the early and mid 60s comes to an end uh by the end of the decade yeah sure um so yeah the hendrix show is i think it's march of 67 um and you know this is this is a cultural this is a moment of generational change um you know vice later who is incredibly innovative and you know really rebellious in terms of his dealings with the authority uh, of the authorities um you know now he starts to see something different taking place on stage that makes him the old guy you know he makes him the guy who's no longer really in touch um you know, and, and there's quite a few structural things that contribute to the change. Um, for example, in, in the mid-60s, um, particularly in the wake of Beatlemania, um, rock and roll goes from being this sort of niche, um, you know, basement-level taste into becoming, um, you know, featured everywhere. Um, you know, it's international. It's no longer underground. Um, you know, um parents are buying beetle wigs and trying to be hip right so <laughs> you know so that's so that's one thing um and so that and then there are certain changes that happen in san Pauli as well um san Pauli has always been a place that thrived on selling sex um and you know while rock and roll has this 
moment, you know, from about 1960 to 67, where it really does great business for San Pauli, the main business of San Pauli has never stopped being sex. And by, you know, by the, by 67, 68, um, you know, censorship around sexuality is just collapsing everywhere um, in, in Germany, in West Germany. And um, so more and more sex themed businesses, um, you know, come into the area, um, more and more open prostitution. And this exerts a certain, um, I think, um, sort of commercial pull um, that works against the music clubs. Um, there is also, you know, as I said, this generational change. You know, not only Weisslater is sort of, you know, becoming the old guy, but also that original audience from the early 60s, those people are now, you know, they're, they're, they're into their 20s you know, a lot of people are getting married, they're leaving the scene. So there's a generational shift. And the younger generation um, are, I think, you know, they don't have to fight quite as hard for their right to party. And, uh, <laughs> I like you how know, you put that. <laughs> right. So, you know, so so they are really much more open to these more extreme sensual experiences, right? So so if you think about, you know, Jimi Hendrix, I can only imagine what it was like to see him on stage in March of 67. The loudness, the feedback, the acrobatics, you know, the overt, the, the hypersexual presentation, um, you know, him and his guitar. I mean, this must have seemed to the old guard like what the heck is that you know what is this guy doing that is that is Weisslater's reaction to this he thought that Hendrix was making fun of you know rock and roll and and he felt that he felt Hendrix's performance was very disrespectful whereas these younger people this younger generation are looking at him and they're like oh my gosh this is great he is pushing the envelope and you know this is also coinciding with now, you know, the influx of, of, of more, you know, I don't know if psychedelic drugs are quite in the picture in 67, but certainly hashish, um, you know, so, so the whole, the, 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 the expectations of, of, you know, what a night out will be are starting to change as the audience changes. Um, and, you know, the Star Club will find itself unable to keep up with these changes. And, you know, this is a typical thing. This is what happens with music scenes. They are, there's a reason that it's a scene that's bounded by time and space and place because scenes change, people move on, um, you know, conditions change. And, and what will happen is that the Star Club will not be able to adapt to the new audience expectations. Other clubs, will. Um, you know, Peter Eckhorn, who I mentioned earlier, his club on the Raperbahn, it was called the Top Ten. The Top Ten is able to transition um, away from so much live music and more into pre-recorded, that sort of disco format, the discotheque format, um, and they will continue on um, into the 80s, and they will morph into something else. The Star Club is not able to morph into something else. Um, and Weisslater himself, he he's he, by 67, the Hendrix show appears to have been some kind of watershed for him, too. He, he'd been fighting with the authorities for years. Um, you know, this rock and roll club has always cost him money. He, he made his money off of his strip clubs and his erotic cinema. The Star Club was kind of a loss leader for him, even though he loved it and he, he put a lot of energy into it. And he really cared about, um, you know, providing an authentic... Um, experience for young people that wasn't 
crass and commercial. Um, you know, he's a he's a really interesting figure. He ends up becoming you know one of the key figures in my book because there's just he becomes active on so many fronts. Um, but by 67, 68, he's tired and he gets out. He sells the club to a couple of local musicians, um, you know, a couple of guys from a group called the Rattles, who were one of West Germany's most successful um, beat bands. But they they can't make a go of it. And by they, they close, and you know, this very sort of heavy symbolism, their last show takes place on December 31st, 1969. And so literally, you know, the Star Club ends, um, you know, on the last day of the 1960s. Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, yeah, I am, you know, I'm continuing to work on um, some aspects of the history of St. Pauli. I'm working on one of the, the nightclub owners from the 20s and sort of charting his path from Weimar into the Nazi period and beyond. Um, I'm also writing a piece about the show Babylon Berlin, which um, my grand theory is that Babylon Berlin is a mashup of um, the 80s, that, that, that is the sort of um, Weimar Republic through the lens of people who came of age in Berlin in the 1980s. And then I'm also writing a very short history of West Germany. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do look forward to reading your work in the future. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us, Julia. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>